fundamental tenet, which I pulled from my military experience, is the plan is usually worthless, but the planning is everything. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Jeremy Searock, is the CTO and co-founder of Advanced Construction Robotics. If you're a regular listener, that's a familiar company because Stephen Muck spoke about that being one of the companies that he was building just a few months ago on this very show. While Steve brings an extensive background building heavy infrastructure in his construction conglomerate doing more than $200 million in revenue, Jeremy brings a background in developing technology that he learned at Carnegie Mellon University and in 12 years of military service operating nuclear submarines. In today's interview, we not only discuss his military experience and the technology that underpins their two products, TieBot and IronBot, but the future impact on construction generally from automation and robotic technology that has broken into many other industries but has been slower to be deployed in the messy business of building. I learned a ton, and I think that what they are doing at ACR is exceptionally compelling. I'm interested to see if you feel the same way. Reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn to let me know what you think of today's interview and enjoy our conversation with Jeremy Searock. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It's nice to be talking with you. Great. I appreciate it. I'm excited to, to be here. So we've got this challenge where there is video up on the YouTube channel, but there are plenty of people that listen in an audio format. Mm-hmm. So what I'd love to try and do for people is explain this piece of machinery that we've got sitting behind us. Uh, my dad uh, has been in construction for decades. Uh, I've shown him video of this before we came and the role that this can play in tying and organizing rebar for these different types of construction jobs, he was phenomenally impressed by. But for folks that might not have the construction background, might not be able to see us visually, can you just explain what your first product here at Advanced Construction Robotics does, the TieBot? Sure, it's, uh, I think it's uh, fairly simple, but so reinforced concrete is one of the most widely used materials in the world. And uh, before you pour concrete, you want to put the rebar down on the on the ground. Uh, and you need to tie it together because if you don't tie it together, when you pour the concrete, it can move out of place. And that ruins the structural integrity of the concrete you pour. So currently the state of the art is is people bending over for hours at a time with their hands, with pliers, and some people use um, tie guns, that uh, you have to tie this reinforcing bar together, right? And uh, so what we did is, is made a gantry system uh, that spans the width of a reinforced concrete application, uh, and it moves left and right, forward and back, and up and down uh, in order to take a tie module and tie the intersections together of uh, reinforcing bar or rebar. And I was watching an action before we started the interview. You've got these long rebar uh, laying, you know, know, basic checkerboard design, and it has the ability to just slide over each little joint intersection, tie together. And that is, so when the the concrete's actually laid, all those ties remain. It basically just holds it in place while the concrete's poured over the rebar. That's correct? That's that's correct, right? It, it has no structural integrity other than keeping the rebar together at the right spot prior to concrete pouring. 
Gotcha. And so take us back to how you recognize the opportunity for something like this, because um, in, in the broad, broad spectrum of startups or even just even robotics startups, there's all sorts of uh, exceptionally sexy directions where you could take a skill set like yours and a capacity to imagine uh, the impact of a, a piece of robotics. This is, I would say, on the lower end of the sexy spectrum, but highly effective g- given what you said. There's, you know, reinforced concrete all over the place and a lot of construction that needs to be done. Yeah, that's that's uh, maybe a longer answer, and we'll we'll step into that. Right? Is is you know my background besides being in the military uh, was at Carnegie Mellon and, and working on more advanced research and development, mostly for the part Department of Defense. Uh, but one of the problems with with those projects is that you take it to the prototype stage, and then you start the next project. Right? So you can, you never really got the opportunity to take it from a prototype all the ways to a product. Right? And that's fun to do. Uh, so something I wanted to do and, and some of the team that came with me from Carnegie Mellon's, we were we were really excited about being able to take an idea from the infant stage and patent stage all the way through to seeing it work every day. I mean, most roboticists, uh, when you look at your uh, system or robot you built, really think about it as a child. You have really nurtured that thing along from the very small stage where it can barely move around through to really seeing it do its job. Uh, so, you know, I was and, and others were looking for opportunities to take a robot through to a product. Uh, specifically for this is I met Stephen Muck, who you had the podcast with a couple weeks ago, and he's on the construction side. And he had the original idea of of Tybot, and it was just a great marriage of I really wanted to bring a product to market, and Steve really wanted a solution to to the construction industry. Uh, so we were able to sit down and think about uh, what what we really should solve. So one of the key attributes is that uh, sometimes, especially on the my side or the technology side, you want to create a technology or a cool solution which is on the sexier side and then find the problem, right? So we specifically, and all our products, we specifically work the other way around and say, what is the problem of the industry? How can we solve it? Is it feasible? Is it gonna make the company money? Is it gonna be accepted by the industry? And then go after tackling that whole transition process from from you know idea through to commercialization. And so if there was like a, a theoretical, and it's so funny that you say that, like, you know, not necessarily using the latest whiz-bang technology, but just assembling the the kind of well-worn technologies to solve something that people needed, is actually the story of the uh, first Nintendo Game Boy. When the, mm-hmm. the folks at Nintendo actually um, put that together, there was nothing particularly new in the screen or the process or anything that was there. It was just them assembling the other disparate technologies that were proven to work and making that actually happen. But the other thing here. That, that you're really saying is this Venn diagram of, you know, Steve saying, this is a problem, but he's, you know, any business person has however many dozen problems that they're like staring down. I have this problem. It seems to be within the boundaries of solvable or addressable, not only by a robot, but by a robot in a way that could make sense in a commercial endeavor. Because if it costs me the equivalent of, you know, 20 workers to get this done and it's a five person job. Well, that's not really still a solution to the problem, even if it, you know, calculated the the solution at, at, to some degree. So take me through that, that kind of Venn diagram of, you know, he brings you this problem. You say, yes, I can, or I think I can, or maybe I can. Like, what was that like? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, really, really, you know, our focus is making a company and making it a real solution. Uh, and over the course of the company's growth, you know, we really hope to totally change, transform or disrupt construction by by making a bunch more products. Right. So we have, you know, sort of big plans and able to pull off big plans like that. You got to be smart about how you go about your product development process. Right. So we do have a, you know, formalized process that helps us make smart decisions early on and then smart decisions through the design process to make what the industry wants. You can't make the assumption that from the early stage that the idea you come up with is the right idea, right? You can't make the assumption that the, the industry is going to accept it, but you can certainly eliminate some and start that progression. So you know, early on, we need to answer those questions. Is this technically feasible? Right. Does the science exist to do it? And can we engineer it to be there? Uh, is there a business case? If we build it, assume we're completely successful in building it exactly the way we want to. Is it going to make the company money? Right. We, we were a business. And for us to disrupt the industry, we need to stay in business and we need to get more money to hire more engineers, to make more products, to continue to make that uh, new industrial revolution possible. Uh, and we got to make sure that it fits into the current industry. Uh, one of our um, you know, philosophies is that we, we want to fit the current robots that we build into the current operations that the construction industry uses today. We don't want them to make a, a big leap in right. how they change their day-to-day operations. So for Tybot, you know, they bring a crew and it ties a rebar. So now they can bring one person and Tybot and tie the rebar. It doesn't change the flow in which they, they do their operations. So, so again, we, we have a sort of detailed process, but fundamentally you have to consider business strategy, construction operations, and engineering uh, in order to make the right decisions at the beginning, the middle, and at the end. And the other fundamental tenet, which I pulled from my military experience, is the plan is usually worthless, but the planning is everything. Meaning it's very difficult to predict how the industry will accept it. It's very difficult to predict what the challenges will come out from a technical perspective. So the whole team and the culture has to be set up such that as you go through that progression, and problems happen or challenges happen, you're able to adapt and change because like war, entrepreneurship is is making plans in the face of unknown and uncertainty. So I would love if, if there's any kind of tangible examples of those type of adjustments that you've had to make since the inception of the company to kind of get the product to where it is now because... Um, you know, it's just helpful for people to understand how those kind of adjustments happen. But uh, from an outsider's perspective, there's all sorts of narratives. If you, you read media headlines about automation or robots coming for your job, and I can see why almost at like a something akin to a political level, you're negotiating not just the impact of someone's bottom line, because that's a relatively easy thing if you can kind of convince a business owner or a decision maker who's responsible for a budget, hey, here's the impact on your bottom line. But there's also, you know, getting people to work side by side with a piece of machinery like this, with a tool like this. So can you just talk a little bit about some of the um, challenges associated with getting this out into the field and those type of adjustments you've had to make? Sure. There's certainly been uh, many thoughts and changes in the evaluations that we've we've gone through in getting getting Tybot uh, out in the field. It's uh, 
you know, for example, we've, we, we, I think originally predicted that if we did about 700 ties per hour, that it would be fantastic for the industry, right? Um, as we evolved, we've realized that's probably not fast enough. So we put more uh, engineering effort into, you know, eking out uh, more and more ties. Now we're up to uh, up to 1,100 ties per hour. And uh, can you compare that to like what was being done previously or how that works in another so, context? So the, the crews that tie rebar, uh, there is actually a wide variance of their speed, right? Makes There's sense. contractors that, that install rebar every day that's their job that's their subcontractor job and then there's general contractors that's just that's just a a portion of the job they do so therefore you can imagine the skill set of of the workers can vary right uh so in general we say between 150 to 250 ties per hour is the speed of a human worker tying okay right? Uh, so that translates, you know, four, four to eight, uh, you know, workers or so in terms of what Tybot's capabilities are, right? And so why, why was 700 not enough to move the need or, or, or was kind of uh, a low watermark? You, you, can, you can imagine we are, you know, one of the first or leader in construction robots today, which is a whole new industry. Uh, you know, very recently, uh, some more venture capital has been closed on on two other construction robots companies uh, out in Silicon Valley. Um, so bringing a robot, which we like to just call it a machine, a new machine to the job site uh, requires uh, more explanation and more compelling uh, data than a normal machine that people are used to, right? So you really want to overwhelm them or excite them uh, with the capabilities of your of your robot to have them, uh, you know, accept a new piece of machinery, right? So we determined, uh, you know, 700 ties per hour just wasn't compelling enough to to push the industry over the over the edge. Gotcha. And what's and so what's the business model for something like this? Are you selling this product into one of those subcontractors that would have otherwise been finding guys for each job or guys or ladies, mostly guys for these types of jobs? Is it being leased by the general contractor? How does that type of arrangement work? So so I'm engineer background and, and Steve, my partner, is, is a business background and, and has done uh, 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 investments and, and mergers and acquisitions for, for a long time. So it's been fun for me to see really how similar the process goes in determining your business model, just like working through engineering problems. Yeah. What is the right decision? Is it best to sell? Is it best to lease? Well, maybe it just depends, right? So we've evolved over over getting feedback from the industries. And right right now we're doing a leasing model where we're going to, you know, we're leasing the machines to the industry. And, you know, I think over the, the long term, as we mature the product, uh, we'll partner off uh, and, and have the, the leasing and manufacturing of these, these robots off to a partner. Um, why? Because there are many people in the world that are very good at manufacturing, leasing, sales, service, support. We can do that and we could scale that, but there's very few people in the world or very few companies capable of producing new products like this. So our expertise is is really being able to make these new products and really take them from that innovation stage to the commercialization stage. And that's what we want to keep doing because in the end, uh, we want to fundamentally bring robots to the construction site, right? To the job site as many as we can to really uh, break construction through what I 
been calling the next industrial revolution, right? If you look back in the 1900s, there used to be a crew of workers with shovels and buckets digging big holes, right? And and that's what you did, yeah. right? Now you don't think twice about, well, should I bring the crew with buckets or should I bring the excavator? Should I bring the machinery or the crew with buckets? It's not even a question. You'd be, that's stupid yeah. to not use an excavator, right? That's what's happening now. Tybot's one of the first to do that, but there's other companies. And, and as we go, you're going to look back and say, well, why would I possibly use a crew of people bending over all day, hurting themselves, using their hands to tie rebar and place rebar, which is our next product? Why wouldn't we just use the machine, right? So that transition is is what we're focused on. So when you think about those revolutions, what also you know, bends the mind or would have bended the mind of someone who had yet to live through such a revolution. If we mm-hmm. use that past one as an example is, you know, for a long period of time, there weren't skyscrapers. And then all of a sudden there were skyscrapers, right? Like you can see some sort of visual change to the lived environment or just in the way a story might be told of how something actually came together. So when you think about Tybot, your next product, IronBot, you think about the you know, mass implementation of robotics into these types of construction environments. Mm-hmm. Is Are the two main paradigms things built more cheaply, things built more quickly? Am I missing anything there? I guess things built more safely might be the third thing. Like what is the the paradigm shift when we actually use something like the term like an industrial revolution? Yeah, I think there's a couple parts to that, right? So fundamentally, an individual product like Tybot and the individual products we go through, right, are going to make a single person more productive, right? So one person can do the work of eight people, right? right? So you increase the productivity of it. Secondly, it's scalable, right? So if you need more work or more people, you just buy another robot or rent another robot. So you can scale your ability to build or your business can grow just by using more robots. Uh, Of course, safety is huge. So you just eliminate the amount of people on the job site, which for a construction site in the bridge deck is is uh, it, uh, can be unsafe. It's hard to walk on the rebar. If you look look there at the rebar, right? It's you got to walk on tap that all day. Think about morning yeah. dew and slipping, and and when you're placing the water, you're carrying thousand pounds of stuff with several other guys trying to to place the bar on there. So so safety is big, uh, and and you know all of those in one way or another lead to profits or lead for the ability for a company to grow right? And do more work. Right. So if you look at the demand for the construction industry, uh, it's growing and growing rapidly. And, you know, today there's a skilled labor shortage and there's a productivity gap that needs to be filled. Um, and construction is going to do that through, through this, this, um, you know, innovation we're working on. But there's a second as there's a second aspect to this is which, which you'll see in any sort of disruption curve, and you kind of look at disruption science, which is kind of the trend that robotics will be on for the for the world, is, like I said, we're focused now on making sure these individual robots or product lines fit into current operations. But as the industry gets used to using these machines, these new machines that call robots, they're going to be comfortable with them and they're going to trust them. When you get to that point, you get to make a big, much bigger leap in the design of those robots. Another way to said is when you're at that point, the full construction operations can actually adapt 
to the efficiencies of the machine itself. Meaning I could build a much bigger machine that does everything. But if I did that now, the industry would say, no way. It's too big of a leap. Yeah. Right. You got, you have to grow the technology and the leap along with the industry's acceptance and trust and reliability uh, in order for that uh, disruption to happen. But the driving factor is economics. Gotcha. Yeah, because I just, you know, you hear these different stories, and and I'm trying to piece all these different ideas together here, but um, I really like Patrick Collison, one of the co-founders of Stripe, the, one of the biggest private remaining startups out there. And he is obsessed with the study of the greatest projects that were done in a short period of time. So you might know this, or when I set up the question this way, they might... Uh, people might kind of get what I'm getting at, but he goes, how long do you think it took to build the empire state building? Mm -hmm. Cause you know, if people have been familiar with the big dig or these other construction projects that just go on and on and on and on and on like, Oh, well, it must've taken, you know, five, 10, 15 years. And the answer is about three. And you see, you know, at the, at the beginning of COVID, I saw the story that in Wuhan, they built an entire hospital in, I think it was like nine days or something, or, you know, this other building was built in 10 days. And, you know, much like anything in life, when someone pushes the boundaries, it makes you kind of reconsider what is even possible. And when I think about the context of this, where I don't necessarily know that this machine would even have to take the evening off or the night off just because it got dark, because I saw the kind of spotlight that you guys had down for looking at the rebar. That, that's right. It does work day or night. It's got its own light and and in rain. Uh, right. And, and, yeah. and, you know, all the different things. My dad's been in construction. The things that slow a process down like that, oh, you know, the electricians are waiting on the plumbers to do this and that and the other thing. From a coordination standpoint, it's obvious that there's a ton of potential, but it's much more difficult and intractable for all sorts of regulatory and, and complex reasons. But that is, when you think about the other side of what that could be, that's a pretty darn big idea. So what can you tell me about the product design process for things that have, are coming after Tybot. So you mentioned IronBot. Can you explain the IronBot process? And then I don't know if you're ready to talk about the next products yet or not. Sure. So, so you know, we're, we're making core product lines or core technology. So Tybot is fundamentally a rebar tying robot, right? We've been working on bridges right now. Well, we're about to do some some more jobs on, on roadways and and. and other buildings that are used to reinforce concrete. So the base technology is transferable to every reinforced concrete market. You just have to repackage it to fit that particular operations. Like I said, fit the current operations of, of the industry. So one of the things we're going to do is, is take Tybot to the rest of the reinforced concrete market, which is huge. Uh, and of course, everybody who ties rebar says, thank you. <laughs> that was a pain. And I'm glad I don't have to do that again. Yeah. Uh, but everybody asks, well, when are you going to make the one that carries rebar and places it? So that's what IronBot is, is that it carries the bundle of rebar and places it at the right spacing in both directions, transverse and longitudinal, literally to take thousands of pounds off the backs of workers. So those two will work in junction, right? So IronBot will place the rebar and then TieBot will tie it, which is a massive increase in overall productivity rate uh, for reinforced concrete placing. And it's, as you can imagine, placing rebar is not just applicable to bridges, it's applicable to warehouse buildings, wind farms, you know, box buildings, data centers, you name it. 
Does it have to be substantially different if these are vertical builds, though? Because I'm thinking about like a road or what I'm even seeing here is this kind of like horizontal layout coming up vertically. Seems like that would be a whole other set of challenges um, from a, sure. like a stability that, standpoint. That's right. So, so again, the core technology sees rebar, sees intersections, and puts a tying module there. The rest of the supporting mechanical engineering design gets it there, right? So, yes, it's more difficult. Horizontal is easier than going vertical, yeah. but we'll absolutely get get there. Gotcha. So I'm curious, you know, another part of the story of the show is that it's a career show. And um, I like often to try and point out the attainability of uh, certain career outcomes for people. Mm -hmm. But you've got a somewhat uh, specialized background to allow you to be the CTO of a company like this. And so from that vantage point, you spent 12 years as a naval officer. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there and how that, you know, has informed or kind of set you up to succeed now mm -hmm. that you're um, in private enterprise? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm certainly proud of my, my military time and, and the lessons I learned there. And, and let's be clear, you know, being in the military and being deployed is tough, right? Yeah. There's a lot of uh, emotional challenges, uh, you know. Uh, brain challenges, physical challenges, etc. And every service has a uh, different emphasis on those. Uh, so I was a submarine warfare officer. Uh, all submarines are nuclear powered. So I was trained in uh, nuclear power operations. And I, my first job on the submarine was uh, the, the lead supervisor of the nuclear power plant. You know, at that, at that time I was 23 years old. And while you're on that ship, doing your job of running the reactor, you learn all the rest there is to be able to fight the ship, right? So to be the officer of the deck, which is essentially the leader of this whole ship for that watch period. So it took me about a year and then I, I qualified and you get your little gold dolphins, as you call it, which is like flight wings for a, for a pilot, for a submarine officer, which said I was trusted by the Navy to be in charge of the entire submarine. So so one of the key tenants, tenants of my military time was you're put in charge at a very young age with a lot of responsibility and simply not enough training and education, yeah. right? So I kind of knew what I was doing, but I didn't really know what I was doing, right? So that's very stressful. Uh, so learning the skills to handle stress, handle things not going wrong, going the way you want them to go, uh, dealing with people who work for you who really don't want to be there you have to motivate uh your your sailors and your your uh, crew to get the mission done right that's that's one aspect that i really look back upon and second is just perseverance right there's a book called grit by angela duckworth it's fantastic right? yeah uh so i i'm a huge believer in grit um in the sense that yeah, you can pretty much accomplish anything if you just put your mind to it and just work hard, right? Work hard, figure it out, and, and get it done. Uh, and I've learned I've learned that in my military time as well. So so translating that to to helping to build Taiba and advanced construction robotics was you know in the beginning it was just Steve and I, right? I mean I had to do everything. Yeah. And you got to figure out what's next and. How many people can hire? Can I pull it off? It's there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things you don't pe feel prepared to do. You know. So the the thing that you know I hear that and 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 a line that I always talk about is every year that I've been running company with me and Hannah, 
I've gotten like a little bit higher threshold for stress. Mm-hmm. Like what, whatever, whatever would have stressed me the hell out year one, year two, like I can handle that because you've been through it. I think about being on a military submarine and obviously I, I don't know first thing about that. That seems so stressful relative to anything that I've ever done from like a, a, a business building. So like the stakes just frankly aren't the same height. So when you enter a situation like this where you're building a business and it's not, you know, the the capacity for just real physical danger as it goings on with what you're doing, do you feel like it ever approaches that same level of stress? Does it just feel like a different category of stress? Like how does that land with someone like you? That's a, a interesting question, right? I feel like I'm at a therapy session, right? Yeah. Okay getting it out of my head um yeah i guess i look at it as a different category uh so i would i would agree that my time out at sea going through the different operations was more stressful um i was younger i was less experienced it really was my my first job and 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 it's true i mean if i made the wrong mistake it potentially was a national event right talking cnn yeah or i made another mistake wrong i could have killed people. Yeah, I could have sunk ships You're by running into them. You're <laughs> underwater. I mean, I was ultimately in charge of which direction you drove, and if if something went wrong, it was my responsibility. And you certainly felt that responsibility, and you felt that. But you had a crew, right? You had people much more experienced than you. They were working for you, and then they were supporting you, and you could really, you know, you really felt that support from them. So, so yes, the ability to handle unknown situations and handle stress is a lot easier now, given that previous experience I have. And I, and I value that. And are there other leadership principles that you've found to be really transferable? Because I would also imagine you're in those stressful situations. You can't show it. You can't, you know, be sweating and just, you know, hyperventilating all the time because that's going to transfer to the rest of the squad. So how do you manage that as you're leading people through whatever the challenge of the day here is at the company? Yeah, I mean, that's a fundamental principle. They they call it, uh, military calls it command presence. Yeah. Uh, Steve has great command presence as well from all of his experience. Uh, uh, you know, Steve has a similar experience where he, you know, he, he started his, he ran his company when he was, uh, I think, 31 years old is when he started uh, Brayman Construction, yep. bought Brayman Construction Corporation. So, yeah, it really gives you a different perspective on your work life. Kind of another attribute is just this idea. I often describe it like this is that you, when you're in the military, it's very process oriented, right? Running as, as most people tell me when I, when I explain to this and they're like, well, I'm really glad that there was a lot of procedures and process and training and qualifications and endless tests to keep the nuclear power plant safe. And I also had nuclear weapons to make sure I didn't screw up the nuclear weapons. Right. seems logical. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, when I worked at Carnegie Mellon, I spent six years helping to lead projects at Carnegie Mellon. On that side, you're inventing stuff that's never existed before. You're inventing new science. So how do you structure that? How do you make a procedure around inventing new stuff? Most people will say it's not possible and don't do it. But I discovered when I worked at Carnegie Mellon was, although that may be true, I was still responsible for the contract right? I had a budget. I had a schedule. I had to do a budget and a schedule while you're inventing. So so the combination of a very structured, procedural-oriented military time and working on, you know, kind of the cutting edge of, of tech 
gave me a real good perspective on how to set up the processes. So when I came here and I got the full power to decide how we're going to do things, um, I kind of purposely blended the two where you have to let the team experiment, grow, think, you know, try to invent that new thing that's never invented before, but you got to stay on schedule, right? And you got to make your way through that process or else you're never going to get from the innovation stage to the commercialization stage. So that's a bit of a, uh, a maybe a unique attribute we have here is, uh, you know, smart ways in which to get, get that all the way through to the finish line of, of creating products. Some people call it the, the, the 10% problem where it's, you can get a autonomous robot to the 90% mark, but yeah. it's really difficult to go that last 10% and get it to a customer. Cause when it's not the customer, you can't babysit it. You can't watch it. You can't have an engineer, you know, fixing it. Yeah. It has to work by itself. Well, maybe, and, and maybe this is not a proper categorization, but you know, it is important that, that a job like tying the rebar gets done. And I'm sure that this is a wonderfully precise machine, but at the same time, if it's going to be inspected after the fact, before the concrete gets laid, and one out of however many thousands of ties is missing or off, the stakes of that mistake very different than, you know, similar to the instances where your mistakes inside that submarine could lead to the loss of life. If an autonomous vehicle makes a mistake, humans are dying. So I would imagine that, not that you guys don't have a high standard for quality and excellence, but being able to operate in a domain where the marginal last percentage isn't quite the same. Is, is that a fair categorization? Th that's, that's true. And that's actually one of our attributes or goals we shoot for in, in product development, right? So contrary to autonomous cars, right? Autonomous cars have to work every time, right? Because yeah. there are high, high stakes and you're replacing one person, right? So it's one-to-one -one removal. For us, the opportunity in construction is so large, right? There's many tasks that can be automated or made uh, a, a single person to be able to do uh, a crew's worth of, of jobs that we specifically want uh, to not tackle the super hard technical challenge. We also don't want to tackle removing all the people from the job site. I don't, we don't, we don't see a future of construction that's just robots. It's always going to be a crew of people and a crew of robots. It's just that that combination of the two is going to be way more productive and be able to do way more work than just a crew by itself. So one of the key attributes of that is if you, if you, we, we keep a person with Tybot. Yeah. to replace the fuel, replace the wire and check what's going on and help help with safety. That's fine because it still does the work of 48 people, so uh it's enough of an economic improvement that you can do that, right? If we wanted to totally remove the person, that's a lot more development time that's that's better spent making Ironbot, right? Cuz if you want to transform an industry and you want to disrupt an industry, you got to you got to tackle the big the big chunks not just keep refining the, the first product. Gotcha. So one of the last things I want to ask about is the talent question. And, you know, Steve talked a little bit about the challenges of, you know, even getting guys out to the job to do a job like laying and tying the mm -hmm. rebar. But on the flip side, uh, I've, you know, said at the beginning, this isn't necessarily like the sexiest arena with which in to be. 
and there's all sorts of other you know headline grabbing startups for this that or another reason so when you are recruiting engineering talent and other talent into a company like advanced construction robotics what's the pitch what is the you know vision that you're painting for someone that you know at the margins gets them to come here as opposed to some you know tech office where everyone gets like a free milkshake or something when they that's walk right in. right so so i think i think the the first part is that we really are getting our products out the market quickly we want to get it built and we want to get it out the market and we want to get it experience and testing and then improve it and get it uh, more experience so it is very exciting for engineers to be able to see their product in the field working by itself right driving by a job site seeing it you can go tell your kids yeah look daddy built that right which my kids do which is which is terribly satisfying that's awesome and i and i love it right uh so so one is you know we really are focused on commercialization we're not just about creating the tech we're about creating the tech and bringing it the whole way through to commercialization, right? Which of course is any company, but we're really putting a lot of effort into to getting things out there there quickly. The other attribute is we get to uh, learn all aspects, right? So the engineers and our business folks and our construction folks together are all working together to make the right decision because the, the right decision uh, sits in the middle space between construction and business and engineering, right? So they have to interact. They have to learn each other's jobs just a little bit. Don't, I don't want engineers being business people, but nonetheless, you know, if one person knew all of it, they could make all the best decisions, right? Uh, so we have a very great culture uh, and collaborative team environment that uh, is, is, is very fulfilling and I think maybe a bit unique in that we, we really care about everybody, right? You know, I always say you have a, you have a work family and you have your, your home family and you have responsibilities to both of them and let's just work it out and, uh, and all be successful together because if the company's successful and your family's not successful, we're not successful. Beautiful. Well, Jeremy, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. I uh, am excited to see the robots that you guys continue to pump out in action at a job site near me sometime soon for folks. Actually, before I ask where people can connect with you, Anything else you were hoping to share today, generally, that I didn't give you a chance to? Don't think so. We are raising funds this year, so it's exciting okay. to uh, to uh, start our venture capital process for this year. Nice. And uh, uh, anybody who's interested can contact us, yeah. right? Some past uh, guests on this show might That's be right. might be interested. I, we can talk about that after we're done recording. Uh, for folks that want to get into contact, maybe they are investors, maybe they're just interested in... Uh, you know, these types of robotics generally, what digital coordinates can we provide people if they want to learn more? I, I love LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. So for, for me personally, contact me at LinkedIn. And uh, for the company, we have uh, go to the website at uh, www.constructionrobots.com. Beautiful. We're going to link that all in the show notes for this episode. It is in the podcast app. You're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeepthere.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. Before I let you go, Jeremy, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue a challenge to the audience. So I think my challenge to the audience is to don't underestimate yourself. You, Everybody is capable of way more 
than they think they are. And the only way you discover that is by giving it a try. Will it be stressful? Yes. Will it be painful? Yes. Could it hurt? Yes. Right. But it's through that stress and pain and adversity that you gain the grit to be able to surmise to the next challenge. Uh, I think that's been my, my philosophy is, is just to say yes and not say no. I love it. Um, one of my favorite books in the same family as Grit, it's called The Upside of Stress, which mm. is literally just all about taking stress in and reinterpreting it as something that can be beneficial or elevating to you as opposed to something that kind of takes you down. So I'm in complete agreement. Do you know, do you have a uh, memory of when that kind of flipped for you or that lesson became particularly salient or has that just kind of been always something that, you know, parent or guardian installed? I think that, uh, that, you know, I made a fundamental choice at 17 to, to join the military that I knew was going to be difficult, but I really felt that that was my calling uh, by, uh, by a higher authority to go. So I went, uh, and once you're on that train, it's actually hard to say no. Uh, so I think, I think the, the change is once you try it once or twice, then you know, it's the right choice. But unless you take that first step, you're stuck. Amen to that. What a perfect note to wrap up on. Thank you so much for Absolutely. coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We just went deep with Jeremy Searock. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Jeremy. If you enjoyed this and you haven't yet heard our conversation with his co-founder, Stephen Muck, referenced in the interview, go check that out. I linked it in the show notes to this episode and hit subscribe. We've got fantastic interviews with entrepreneurs every single week from media agencies to technologists to office furniture wholesalers and everyone in between. You'll find it here on Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.